Let's um, start our time together with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you, Father, that you have forgiven our sins in Christ, Lord, and you continue to work out your work in us. We thank you, O Lord, for the great history that you've given to us of your works of old. And uh, we pray, Father, that you would continue that in this day. Give us wisdom, Father, by the study of your word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, we are back in uh, Genesis 17. Last week we covered circumcision and uh, talked about circumcision, did a deep dive on, uh, on circumcision. Today, what we're going to do is back back out and uh, look at... Genesis 17, I'm going to largely skip the sections that deal with uh, circumcision, but uh, we will uh, go through the discussion of the rest of the the chapter and its uh, importance to the rest of redemptive history, so at least an introduction into that. I've got uh, several scripture passages that I'd like to give out. First off, I'd like to split up Genesis 17 in two. Who would, Chris? Thank you. And um, the second half, uh, thank you, Jeff. And um, my good wife, how about uh, Galatians 4, 21 through 31? And uh, Stephen, how about uh, Exodus 3, 6 and 13 through 16? And then... uh, I think that's uh, that's the ones I'm going to give out for right now. I may. Yes, 21 through 31. God made a covenant with Adam. He continued that covenant in Noah, and uh, we're in the Abrahamic covenant. He started that as we saw back in Genesis 12. And we've seen that that fuller explanation that God has given to Abraham in the revelation that he continues as he appears to him, as he appears in visions, as he speaks to Abraham. And uh, Abraham continues to have a fuller vision of God's uh, plan in his life. And yet we also know that he has to walk by faith. And he continues that. That's an uh, an important lesson. A continuing theme of the book of Genesis is that uh, that work of 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 redemption and developing faith in the life of the uh, the believer. We've discussed that Genesis is narrative. It's not didactic per se, and yet there are still lessons that uh, we can correlate with the rest of Scripture, and we'll certainly see that today. I'll be uh, relying a lot on uh, Voss and uh, some of his interpretation for the for the later portion of this. Uh, but that's what uh, what we're going to talk about. Okay, so Genesis uh, 17, first half, second half. Who's Walk before me and be blameless. I will make my covenant between me and you, and 
God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and also give you a son by her. And I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and make him fruitful, and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael his son, all who were born in his house, and all who were brought with him, who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said so. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. And Ishmael his son was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskins. That very same day Abraham was circumcised in and all the men of his house, born in the house, or brought or bought with money from the foreigner, were circumcised with him. Thank you. So, <clears throat> we have another name of God, El Shaddai, uh, popularized by the Bible, not by Amy Grant. Um, Almighty God. It loses some of that uh, force when uh, we say, we've heard it, you know, God Almighty, Almighty God, and it just seems like it's a title and it goes together. But it, it you know, the, the, the actual name means that he's all-powerful. He's all-sufficient. 
this is the, the God, this is one of his names, and uh, he is that all-powerful God. God can do anything. God has the all-sufficient resources in and of himself to do all his will, and apart from anything that human beings do. He isn't dependent on man, and that is the implications uh, when we start talking about uh, all-powerful. Remember back when we talked about uh, God said that I am your shield to Abraham. Abraham's worried about the invasion that may, may come after him as a result of him taking back Lot. But he is his shield. He's also all-powerful. God can do what he has said that he will do. He will protect Abraham from harm. He will protect him in his, uh, in his journey of faith. He will sustain that faith. And it's God alone who is going to, to do that. Uh, Henry Law asks the question, how can the God, the high, the holy, being whose being is perfect, whose home is eternity, contract with the man, the low, the vile, the loathsome, the offspring of the dust, the fluttering with the base rebel in the dungeon? How then can the height of heaven thus descend to misery, dis disease, and filth? That's a very good question, a question that is for us, that uh, this God, this all-powerful God, this God who takes care of his creation takes care of us. He takes care of Abraham, and he sustains his faith. And then we get into the naming committee. I threw that up there, not that God is, is not one, but uh, it is uh, interesting that... Uh, God is a trinity, maybe the, uh, the naming committee. I'm reminded back to my uh, fighter days that every time you go to a new squadron that uh, the, they have to put a new title on you. They give you a new name. Why would a squadron ascribe to you a, a new name? Uh, because they want to tell you who they think that, that you are, and they want to give you identity. Uh, the fighter squadron, uh, the Air Force, seems like always had these really lousy call signs. Something that you did stupid in the, uh, in the squadron was then immortalized for the rest of your career. Unlike the Navy guys who, you know, like, you know, get call signs like Maverick and stuff. But, uh, <clears throat> no, we get really stupid call signs. Uh, but that's not the case here with uh, Abraham. Finally, we get to the point where now my... Uh, Calling him Abraham is actually going to be correct. He is an exalted father. That was his name. And, uh, but God renames him, and he becomes the father of a multitude. He is now ascribing to Abraham that covenant promise more closely. So Abraham now, oh, yeah, Everybody reminds, you know, every time they say to, uh, to him, uh, they call him by name. They call him now Abraham rather than Abram. That's a constant reminder to him of the covenant promises of God that God is fulfilling in him, that he's going to be the father of a multitude. This is one of the promises of God, and now he has that constant reminder to him in his name. When he hears it, when he says it, he introduces himself to other people, and he says, I am Abraham. 
And uh, so that is a constant reminder to him of the work of God in his life. This is going to extend not just for Abraham, but it's going to extend, obviously, to further generations. If he's going to have a multitude that comes from him, if he's going to become a, a great nation, then he, uh, this will extend to his progeny, to his offspring, and to all of the people that, that come from him. And his wife, my princess, that's a, that's a great name. Uh, all of the, the little girls in the, the audience would love that title. But um, she becomes also, in conjunction with her husband, the princess of a multitude. And so now there's an automatic joining of those names and purpose in uh, the, the focus being on the, that future generation, that the offspring that they're going to have, and that's going to point them in the direction of the future and where they're going. The name ascribing to them meaning, purpose, and identity, and focusing them then on uh, the future, the future plans of God. So the title here, Faith, what happens with Abraham? Two steps forward, one step back, Abraham laughs. So, but uh, we'll note right off the bat that uh, there may be, as uh, Calvin said, that this is some sort of relief that God is talking to him. Again, God is reminding him and, uh, and speaking to him, giving him the encouragement for his faith. And um, it is perhaps out of uh, unbelief, but uh, it is likely that's not the case. Why? How do we know that? We can distinguish what happens with, with Sarah, that uh, Sarah laughs in the next chapter, and Sarah gets called out for it. God calls Sarah out because of her lack of, of faith. And so we, we have some sort of distinction side by side here in these two chapters where you can actually see that uh, Abraham, it's recorded that he laughs and that, uh, I mean, you could kind of imagine him in his laughter going, huh, wow, something like that, you know, uh, that maybe marveling at the, the plan of God rather than the, uh, the scornful laugh that, that Sarah has. Either way, I think it's understandable that uh, at uh, 100 years old or at 90 years old that they would you know, laugh in some sort of uh, disbelief, and we as fellow human beings could, could understand their lack of faith after so many years. Um, and even in having been given the promises of God over that period of time, that uh, they would wane in their faith, as we have seen, as we will continue to see. Abraham's focus is on Ishmael. And he goes, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And I see the son. I have the son right in front of me. This son seems to be the one that you are going to fulfill your promises through. And... Uh, and it's very interesting that God actually hears Abraham. 
and he hears the concern for Abraham, and he cares for Abraham, even though Abraham is not the, the son of the, the promise. This is a redirect. This is something that, again, we're having to, God is having to focus the, uh, the faith of Abraham and increase that and get more specific about that. Uh, none of the commentators criticized Abraham at this point that how come he can't go from that grand plan of making him a great nation and making him a blessing to those who bless him and a curse to those who curse him. We would not take that general guidance and, and say, well, that applies to me, and that means I'm going to have a son through my wife. Uh, and But uh, that seems to be the implication or the drive of that. And yet, uh, to be able to connect the dots, especially after 25 years now, um, I think that uh, none of us would uh, would have that same kind of faith. So the text actually goes in and compares Ishmael and Isaac and uh, says, God says, I've heard you, Abraham. And uh, so then in, in Ishmael, what do we have? What do we? What does the text say that God is going to do for, for Ishmael? Okay. What else? He's going to bless him. What else? Great nation. What? Great nation. Great nation. So I'll just go, and there you go. The reason I put this up, the reason I made it like item by item to say, because uh, there's a parallel here, okay? First off, the first comparison that we have is, obviously, these are all blessings that God is going to give to Ishmael. That's what he said. That's what he's going to, to accomplish. We don't have the fulfillment of that recorded in Scripture, and yet we know that God, uh, God keeps his, his promises and what he has said. This is what he promises to Ishmael. How about to Isaac? What is the promise to, to Isaac? Yes. Okay. And I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Okay. And whom the princess of a multitude, uh, Sarah, shall bear to you at this time next year. That's kind of specific. That like says, okay, mark your calendar, you know, we're going a year forward and uh, you're going to have a son. She's going to have a son at 90, 91 years old. So uh, notice the contrast between those two. I mean, it's, it's very apparent because the text puts them side by side. And uh, so you have a promise to Ishmael of all of those blessings, and you have the promise to Isaac of the covenant, okay? So here's the question. <laughs> Which would you choose? Which would you choose? And by the way, I'll just remind us of, remember back when, when Abraham said to Lot, 
you take the right, I'll take the left. You take the left, I'll take the right. Uh, you know, whichever one, doesn't matter. God says, after Lot leaves, it's all yours anyways. In a similar fashion, if we rewind and we go back to verse 6, what do we have? In verse 6, we have all of those. And all of those promises that he makes to Ishmael have already been given to Abraham. So we have this connection that, Abraham, it's all yours anyways, and I'm going to take care of Ishmael, but guess what? Isaac is the son of the promise. He's the one through whom I'm going to establish my godly line. So this points us in the direction of going to a deeper dive on um, on Isaac himself. So just like I did uh, an overview of uh, Abraham's life, Isaac's life is going to be much, uh, the, the overview of it is going to be uh, much shorter and uh, just in this, in this little segment here. As one of the patriarchs, our, let me try that again. Isaac stands in between Abraham and Jacob. Okay? In Abraham, you have energy, creativity, force of personality. We see that. You have mistakes back and forth. But you also have this kind of larger-than-life personality, and his deeds are recorded in Scripture, and they cover a large section of, uh, of Scripture. We also know that we've seen that in Hebrews 11, he covers the most territory there as well. <clears throat> so this larger-than-life figure then serves as a pattern for the life of Isaac. And Voss is going to say that it's, uh, it's a pattern, and Voss and uh, Tipton's interpretation uh, Tipton used that, that uh, word pattern for Isaac. And so there's going to be parallels in between the life of Abraham and the life of Isaac. You have this larger-than-life figure. You have, I used the term lesser. That's not what, what Vaz said. But in terms of the amount of space, he occupies less space in redemptive history. But he serves a very important uh, function. So he is the fulfillment of the promise of God. And uh, Isaac is the son of the promise. So all of the promises have focused on this offspring of Abraham. And now we get the very specific prophecy that is going to be fulfilled in Isaac. And so Isaac is that son of the promise. We also have, we also, like Isaac, are in that redemptive line. So let's, let's listen to what uh, Galatians 4, 21 through, through 31 says. covenant. 
And the uh, defining relationship is the, the definition between Ishmael and Isaac and uh, that contrast that uh, Moses is making in, uh, in Genesis. So then we fall in that line. We are part of that redemptive line by faith and uh, just, like, just like Isaac. But... You could hear, and it helps us as we've uh, gone through Genesis up to this point, Genesis 17, to be able to hear the barren woman and to be able to feel the connections that are automatic in the the text. That helps to to increase our understanding of what Paul's argument is. Paul's argument is the definition between law and grace and uh, the the covenant that's made with Abraham and then continued uh, through Isaac. We also will note that in terms of a defining characteristic, here's the other one that, uh, okay, yeah, hold on just a second here. Um, The patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those patriarchs are how God will define himself. And he appears to each one of those uh, patriarchs. He continues to appear to them. He reiterates his covenant promises to each one of them. And he appears to them in person. And so then we have that explanation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so now Moses, when he goes off to the mountain and he sees the burning bush, he says, what is your name? So I'll not steal the thunder from Exodus 3. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face while he was afraid Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. 
Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. Thank you. That covenant name, the name Yahweh, uh, I am that I am, is fully defined by the use of the patriarchs. None other than Jesus Christ himself will use that term to be able to explain to uh, the Sadducees that uh, he's the God of the living. He's not the God of the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, and yet uh, by faith they, they live, and they live because of the covenant faithfulness of God. And that name is also used by Peter. It's also used by Stephen. And uh, so uh, we, we have that continuing name that is explained in Isaac. And uh, so uh, we have a fuller understanding of, uh, of God because of understanding who Isaac is. Isaac also shows the passive obedience of Christ. So he shows the, these are Voss's words, passivity, suffering, atonement, and obedience. Earlier I had the slide with uh, showing the picture of, of uh, Isaac carrying the, the wood that, uh, that Abraham's going to, uh, that God called Abraham to offer him on. And so you have that obedience that the son is to the father and you I didn't think I'd fall apart here, but um, you have that representation of the passivity, of the obedience following what his father has said, doing what Christ did in going to the cross for us. And we see that pictured vividly in Isaac in Genesis 22. We're not there yet. We'll still have many chapters to, uh, to go through. But we see that picture of the passiveness of the, the Savior. And we also see in Abraham the execution of the active obedience of uh, Abraham actively obeying what God had told him to do, to take the son of the promise and take him up to Mount Moriah, which... It's also Golgotha and offering his son there, being willing to offer his son. We see the suffering, the question mark. We see that fulfillment in God interceding and God uh, providing a substitute. So we also have substitutionary atonement, uh, that vicarious uh, sacrifice that is necessary. So I've got a very long 
passage. I'm going to read it and then go back and explain it. So this is out of Voss's uh, biblical theology. Abraham's kind of faith is a faith in the creative interposition of God. It trusts in him for calling the things that are not as though they were. This does not, of course, mean that the objective content of the patriarch's faith was doctrinally identical with that of the New Testament believer. Paul does not commit the anachronism of saying that Abraham's faith had for its objective the raising of Christ from the dead. What he means is that the attitude of faith toward the raising of Isaac and the attitude towards the resurrection of Christ are identical in point of faith, able to confront and incorporate the supernatural. God provides. God provided the sacrifice for Abraham, for Isaac. And in that moment, we have the the picture of the active and the passive obedience of Christ. And that's where we're headed in the plan of redemption. That's where we're going to go. That is the meaning of Isaac's life right here at the beginning of, of Isaac's life. He's one that is going to be more passive. And yet, if we keep our eyes on uh, what the picture is and the connecting of the dots with the New Testament, then we understand uh, the necessity for, for all of this. Okay. And finally, we have, whoops, did I not flash that up? Did I, was I one behind? Okay. Um, Abraham obeys right away. He doesn't, uh, he isn't drawing back. He's not questioning. He's going to go do what God called him to do. And he's going to take all the males in his house and they're all going to be circumcised. Remember that back several chapters ago, the 318 crack troops, the uh, special forces uh, squad that he had that, that ended up overtaking the, uh, the largest standing army at the time and taking back Lot. Those are the same guys that are going to be circumcised. So all of the, in addition to the rest of the guys, you know, like, like the aged, like me, uh, are not going to they're also going to be circumcised. Abraham himself at 100 years old is going to be uh, circumcised. So what does that mean? That means that for a period of time that they are unprotected. And we remember back to, in as we've studied this before, Genesis 34. So what happened there, just briefly, you know, Dinah is raped by Shechem. He says... Hey, I really like her. So he goes to his father. The father ends up petitioning the um, Jacob and uh, says, "We we want, or I want your daughter for my my son." And they say, the sons of uh, Jacob find out about this, and they end up um, saying, "Well, it's the sign of circumcision. It is the sign of the covenant." that we need to impose on you. And uh, so what happens? They do that. 
they're laid out, they're laid waste, and uh, they're just two of them are able to, to go in and uh, kill them all. So that's the impact. That is the, the immediate impact of having these guys, like your whole household, uh, circumcised. But that's also the connection that we see with, you know, further down the line of, uh, with Genesis 34. This is a covenant sign. And the fact that they used the covenant sign in an unholy, disgraceful way uh, does not please God. So, but there's a, there's a connection for down the road and uh, my discussion of uh, circumcision for today. Okay. Questions or comments? Very good. Thank you for highlighting that. Other comments? Bruce? Yes. 90 through 93 pages. Those, those pages uh, talk about Isaac. So, and then I, I went back to uh, Reform Forum and listened to their podcast about that section. They're always very helpful in giving more of a, you know, that, that explanation. Lane Tipton used that, that word pattern. Um, and uh, I think that that's helpful to see kind of a repetition in Isaac's life of the events in Abraham's life. He's going to make the same sinful choice, so... Uh, we're going to see that again. Well, we're going to see it in Jacob as well. So, you know, um, like father, like son, like father, like grandson, you know. Any other thoughts? Okay. That's Right. And I think that the most significant example we see after that is Moses as he's traveling to Pharaoh. He hasn't even gotten to Pharaoh yet. And he says, The Lord sought to kill him. You know, because he hadn't circumcised his kid. Yeah. And you can read that kind of use that example in the passage. So I thought it was fantastic. Very good. I, yeah, I didn't go into that one, but that's a that's a good one. That's a good another good connection. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for 
the, uh, the much bigger view that you give to us as we study your word, as we dig deep into the truths that you have for us, continue to, to illumine our minds that uh, we might glorify your great name. We ask, Father, that you would be with us as we prepare to worship you. Father, we pray that you would speak through Stephen, through your servant, that uh, you would convict us of sin and point us, Father, to, to righteousness. Thank you, Father, for this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.